This is the Oil & Gas Startups Podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland. What is going on, Wildcatters? This week, we sit down with Ted Kernan with Subsurface.io. What a lot of people don't realize is that when you're launching a startup, where you start and where you end up usually look completely different. Uh, you know, you learn more through the process, you find your product market fit, and you pivot. So what I liked about this episode was that Ted dove into his thought process on pivoting his company a few different times. So I think you guys are going to really enjoy that. A couple quick announcements. We recently launched our newsletter, The Roundup. So if you're not subscribed to that, just hop on over to the website and catch the next blast, which goes out uh, usually every weekend, I think Saturdays. Uh, it's essentially just a recap of all content we dropped that previous week to keep you guys up to date. We're also starting to include some insight into what to expect uh, the following week or following weeks and what will be released. And that's going to be announced on the roundup first. So we also went live on YouTube a few times over the past few weeks. Some of you guys might have seen that. Uh, we did it on a Thursday at 6 p.m. and now it's kind of become a thing. And so uh, we're going to continue doing that. So that's going to be an entirely new show, Wildcatters Live. Um, every Thursday, 6 p.m., we're just having a few friends on and just shooting the shit. What we like about this format is the ability to engage with you guys and to take questions. Uh, so mark that down in your calendar and come join the conversation. We'd love to have you guys. This episode is brought to you by TopTal, and we are super excited to partner with these guys. So if you don't know what TopTal is, TopTal is an exclusive network of top freelance software developers, designers, finance experts, product managers, and project managers in the world. So what's different about TopTal is the rigorous screening process and white glove matching service to help you find exactly what you're looking for. Hiring top talent is always a challenge. It's hard to find the right people for the job in time for important projects. For new startups, time is of the essence. And trust me when I say you can't afford to make any bad hires. Finding the right people to help you turn your vision into a reality is probably the hardest part of running a startup. But TopTal is not just for startups. It's also used by a lot of the biggest companies in the world. So if you're looking for some freelance help uh, with your latest project or want to hire some of the best, go check out TopTal. We put a referral link in the show notes to help you get started or just reach out to us directly and we'll put you in touch. What's going on, Wildcatters? Welcome back to the show. We've got a, uh, our buddy Ted Kernan here who was a week, uh, up until recently, it was well log data, right? That's correct. And yeah. now you guys are rebranded as subsurface. Is it subsurface IO? IO that's IO? right. Subsurface IO. Okay. No dot. Yeah. Cool. So obviously you guys are doing something subsurface like the branding. It's uh easy and straight to the point. Tell us a little bit about what you do. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I want to say off the bat, thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad we could coordinate today. Yeah. So Subsurface IO is a cloud native geoscience and subsurface data platform. We are an enterprise installation system where we go behind customers' firewalls, deploy the software, and help them connect to all of their different data sources and visualize through the data discovery process and then send data to different types of applications, be they, you know, existing desktop applications or machine learning applications. But we basically funnel the data from the data lake into what I like to refer to as the little buckets mm -hmm. that are the desktop applications. Yeah. So this one's, this is interesting. Um, you know, I'm not very, we don't know anything about geology. Yeah, I, was say, <laughs> I don't know shit about subsurface data. So, I mean, I understand the, the, you know, data, um, problem that the entire industry deals with and I can see what you're doing, but what kind of data do you guys deal with um, subsurface? Yeah. So one of the big data sources that we deal with are well logs. And that's why originally the company was called welllogdata.com. And, um, but other sources of data, for example, are seismic data, core and cuttings analysis data, deviation surveys that have mm -hmm. to do where the wells were drilled production data i also count as part of subsurface data because there are fluids that are coming out from the subsurface mm -hmm. all of these different data points actually give us an idea of what's underground so we're never going to be able to peel back the earth's surface and actually look and touch and feel the rocks that are 7000 10000 30000 feet below us mm -hmm. but we can get a picture of what they look like by 
analyzing the information that comes up from wells or in the case of seismic from sound waves that we send into the subsurface and then analyze when they come back. So is it by having more and more of these different types of data, does it paint more of a complete picture of what's going on underground or is there certain types of data that is far superior to others? Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting question. So I think everybody would agree that more data is better, right? So nobody, nobody disagrees with that. Where you are on the surface of the earth actually has an impact on what data is better um, to look at that particular area. So for example, in the U.S. onshore, well logs reign supreme because of the number of wells that have been drilled, because of the detail that a well log brings to you know half-foot measurements in the subsurface. If you go to the offshore realm, seismic is a better tool because you can... Uh, uh, capture seismic would be the word. You can capture seismic in the offshore using boats and using mm-hmm. uh, floating systems much more easily than drilling a well, right? But overall, the idea of the platform and, and the company that I founded was there isn't one place where all of this information is found and is easily discoverable. So think of what uh, Google Earth did for satellite images. Right, satellite images were a niche product. There were various people that were collecting it, but you really had to be a specialist to stitch them together. Google Earth went out there, stitched it all together, and now I can see the roof of my house. Mm-hmm. Right, I can navigate here and looking at the streets. And there's the spin-offs of those products, obviously, from using the satellite images. My idea is in the same vein that there's all this information about the subsurface held either internally at companies or by vendors or in people's minds, because I think interpretations are also a valid input into the subsurface. Yeah, absolutely. And gathering all of that into one place and allowing people to search and discover that information makes that information more valuable and actually uh, decreases the friction around understanding the subsurface. Yeah. I already have a million questions, but before we get there, let's let's learn a little bit more about your story. You and I have met uh, a few times in social settings through through mutual friends and stuff. But honestly, I still really don't know a whole lot about your story. So, how'd you come into the industry? Are you from? Yeah, you, you from walk, Texas. You walked you walked into the no, studio with a Guggenheim <laughs> jacket. So, investment banking. I know there's a good story there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I have been. I was an investment banker for a little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, let me let me begin. Let me start from the beginning. You know, yeah. as, as all good stories begin. So, <laughs> I'm actually from Ecuador. Really? Yes, I'm born and bred in Quito. Okay, at okay. Uh, ten thousand feet above sea level, and uh, fluent in Spanish and a double cit- and a dual citizen. My my father went down to Ecuador in '84 on what he thought was going to be a rotation, the first of many rotations around the world. Ended up falling in love and, and staying in the country. He still lives there with my mother. So <laughs> that's wild. That's awesome. I grew up uh, traveling back and forth the United States, visiting family, went to high school in Quito. Um, you know, obviously learned English from a very young age, learned Spanish. Came to the United States when I was 18 uh, for college. And I went to college in a very small liberal arts college in the Northeast called Williams College. Really not very well known this side of the Mississippi, as I like to say. <laughs> Where's it located at? It's in Williamstown, Massachusetts. Which okay. Doesn't give you a lot of information. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's the last town before New York and before Vermont. Okay. So it's the upper Wait, western so how, corner. How did you choose that one? Was it was it just you just took a dart and you th- threw it at the, the US map on the wall <laughs> and you landed in Massachusetts and you're like, that's it. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's good. So, um, well, my dad had gone to a, a similar college called Hamilton College, which is okay. in New York, about uh, three hours away, and it's actually where my younger brother went. Okay. So I had been aiming for kind of a liberal arts education experience, and the Northeast was where I felt most at home in the U.S. Uh, you know, we my, my grandfather was from upstate New York. Well, actually, he was from New York City, but he ended up living in upstate New York. And so uh, Williams was back when they did this, you know, I, I think they don't do it anymore. The colleges used to be ranked. It was ranked number one in the U S uh, wow. news, news and world record. So I, I went and visited, I decided to apply and I got in. That's awesome. Yeah. Massachusetts is beautiful. Yeah, it is. It is. 
And uh, I, I wasn't prepared for the cold when I moved there. You know? <laughs> Quito's cold, but it's cold in short sprints. Yeah. yeah. Just at night. <laughs> yeah. So when you, um, you know, after, after school, what, what was the next step for you? Yeah. So I went to school thinking I was going to study political science and psychology, kind of go into the foreign service. I always love to travel. And, um, you know, as liberal arts tends to do with you, you, you take a bunch of courses and you kind of decide what you have to do. I was being forced to take a science course and I tried computer. I tried, uh, uh, some kind of calculus. I forget. And I, I just said, no, no more math for me, at least in a college setting. And um, went to computer science, didn't really like it. And then I was recommended a geology course and the teacher was just so funny. I just stuck around for that semester and became a geology major. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And uh, he became my advisor. So I also wrote an undergrad thesis in geology and just fell in love with the fact that it's a science that requires a lot of creativity. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you plot kind of the um, how... uh, strict a science is with its axioms so an axiom is something that underlies the knowledge that a science is built upon right mathematics would be the strictest and then physics would come next and then chemistry and then biology and geology is down the line over closer to you know sociology and anthropology and kind of the social sciences um i ended up double majoring in economics because i thought i was going to be an econ you know do the foreign service and that kind of social science. And so I did geology and economics, which was, which was great. It was a lot of fun. And when I graduated, I basically had two options. I could uh, get hired by a mining company and go live in Red Lake, Canada, which I don't, I, I looked it up on a map once <laughs> and uh, not really uh, very sure quickly. Uh, yes. Nix that idea. Nix that. Well, <laughs> I would have taken it if it was fly in, fly out, because actually that was my dream job. I wanted yeah. to, to go somewhere, work really hard, and then fly out and go travel and do whatever I wanted to do. Um, and then I was offered a job at ExxonMobil, um, which was you know a little bit not a normal thing for kind of an undergrad from a liberal arts college to get a job offer. Uh, somebody else from my class also got got a job offer and then I applied. And so we both, um, were given that opportunity and that's how I found myself in Houston in 2009. So was that, that was for a geology specific position? Yeah, it was. Um, so they were trying at the time to hire more people they could train to, um, become geologists or let's call them Exxon mobile geologists. Right. So 2009, this seems crazy now, but it was actually a shortage of geology. You couldn't find enough people to enter the industry. And so um, there was an idea you could hire people that had done PhDs, right? But they'd spend more time in school. They were a little older. You, you had to take them through the courses, et cetera. Or you could go and hire people with just an undergrad degree and you could teach them, right, how to do petroleum geology and put them through those steps. And that's basically what all of these companies had done in the 80s, but the practice had kind of been abandoned in the 90s when a master's degree was required to enter the industry. So we, we went in and so technically my role, my job title was geotech, mm-hmm. uh, but I was being trained as a geologist and I did eventually get the promotion to geologist, which was a big accomplishment. I'm, I'm actually really proud of that, having done that in Exxon. Um, but what was really interesting is I was placed inside the U.S. New Opportunity Identification Team in 2009, which gave me exposure to all of the shale plays mm-hmm. that were kind of entering the collective consciousness of the industry at that time. You know, obviously there were players that had entered the Barnett and that had discovered, rediscovered the Permian Basin and things like that earlier than 2009. But 2009 was really where it was starting to take off. And I was right there in the middle of it at uh, the largest oil company in the world. There's something um, interesting talking about, you know, just kind of your career path through Exxon and how it was then and how it is today. But someone at NAPE actually just told me a few weeks ago that that big discovery at Exxon had, um, the, um, what was it started with the G man, I don't want to butcher this on the podcast. It was like Guiana or something like that. Anyways, sounds big, right. Big discovery. Yeah. Um, they said that it was actually discovered by an intern. Uh huh. 
Yeah. And they said that it was a prospect that had just been, I mean, they had it forever and no one just put any attention to it because they didn't think that there, it was worth anything. And some intern came in and, you know, he's just kind of going sort of through the old shit and fumbled around through some data and <laughs> yeah. was just like, Oh, what's this? Let's play with it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Geologist yeah. at Exxon told me that. So it's kind of interesting to hear your story about, you know, they come pick you guys, you know, the two of you out of this uh, small liberal arts college and bring you on. And then, um, you know, I don't, I'm not sure how Exxon operates nowadays, but it seems more so that, you know, it's kind of higher, higher barrier, you know, getting a master's and then going that route. Yeah, we were, we were definitely the exception. I think, I think a master's degree is now kind of required to enter the industry, but mm-hmm. I, I don't think it should be that way. I think that, you know, people with a, with an undergrad background could make excellent contributions. Yeah. It's just a, you know, a signaling as, mm-hmm. as they call in economics that you've you've kind of committed to the geology path yeah yeah so how long were you at exxon three years three years so that was what 2009 to 2012 okay yeah. so then what was next yeah so um you probably, so, probably started seeing how shit the data was in shell <laughs> got an idea <laughs> so uh yeah so you know i'd work there and and i want to say i met some some just fantastic people. Some of my best friends, uh, even to this day, are are from my time at Exxon. I just worked with some really great people there. Um, and then, but but I did come to the realization that I I wanted that master's degree. I wanted to check the box, and um, you know, I was never afraid of going on and getting another degree. It was just a question of when. So I took a leave of absence from Exxon in 2012, 2012. And um, went to the Colorado School of Mines to get my master's degree. And the idea had already started to percolate that I wanted to do things with programming. And um, it was interesting because if you go back actually to my time while I was working at Exxon and we were in Houston, I always have an entrepreneurial, you know, kind of spirit or bent. Mm -hmm. And we had tried to start a company with my my younger brother and, and a friend of mine of ours and it was to sell used cars and it was called yeti cars <laughs> um and we wait were we just gonna skip how uh, you guys got to the name yeti i don't even know <laughs> the thinking behind it <laughs> yeah I don't, I don't know i don't i don't exactly even know today how we got there it's memorable though right <laughs> yeah yeah right really 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 cool used cars yeah, exactly. yeah. <laughs> uh and what had happened with that startup is uh, well it's two things one we had hired a, a, so I knew how to do databases uh, from my time at Exxon and, and kind of working with data, but we had no idea how to do web programming. And so we hired a firm here in Houston to do the web programming, and they did exactly what we told them to do, which was not what we needed them to do, right? So we very quickly realized that whatever our first iteration of this product was, was not ready for market or it wasn't sellable. I mean, we, you know, this is just startup 101. Was this supposed to be like an auto trader competitor kind of thing? Um, actually, so the yeah, the idea was more like True Car. Okay, you know, it, it actually came out at the same time as True Car, okay. roughly. So you, they give you a, a, a range of yeah. prices. So we were thinking around used cars. You know, give you yeah, prices. One thing that True Car does well, I believe, was like I think on their website, doesn't it say like best deal, better deal, right? Yeah, not a great deal, way overpriced, right? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Guess so you matrix. Yeah, yeah, and and actually the. Um, you know, I think the idea is still pretty solid um, in terms of, of what's needed is when you look at any data for buying tickets, buying used cars, buying new cars, right? It's basically presented to you as a list. And there are so many other visual tools you could use to look at this data, mm-hmm. scatter plots, bar charts, uh, you know, line graphs like TrueGuard does. Now, there's a question of whether your average person would understand that. Mm-hmm. You know, we can get into people uh, are not as trained as well-trained in statistics as they should be. But there was this idea as data scientists that, Hey, there's all this data. People are making decisions on it. Maybe we can help them kind of Mm -hmm. visualize it more easily. Um, but so this website was built and, um, you know, we came to the realization man, we, we really need more control over how these things are, are done because we need a bunch of stuff changed and we keep getting asked for money. Right. And one of the, things you don't have when you're trying to start a company is money. I mean, you have a lot of time, you have a lot of dedication, but you just don't have a lot of money. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and so we went and asked for money. So I went up back up to Williamstown. I got connected with the angel network and we presented it to one of the 
angel net, angel investors there. And I got the best piece of advice or like feedback or whatever you want to call it that I've ever gotten, which he basically looked at it and he goes, why are you asking me for money to build this? Why aren't you just doing it yourselves? And, um, you know, kind of thought back and took that to heart and said, yeah, I mean, yeah, this isn't, why am I not building this myself? You know, HTML5, JavaScript, whatever you use in your backend, PHP, just not that hard to learn. So uh, when I went up to Mines, this was after all of this, I already had this idea that I'm going to sit down and learn how to program because I have too many ideas to start relying on someone else to execute on them. Mm -hmm. I really need to be able to be the guy at the keyboard that executes on the idea myself. Yeah, that's really interesting because someone like me, I'm not a technical person. I don't develop and always have good ideas, but good ideas cost money, right? Or yeah. you know, convincing someone to to work with you. So it's definitely, you know, always have that thought of like, oh, you know, maybe I should maybe I should learn a little bit of Python, you know, maybe I should learn, you know, some React and learn these languages and start programming. So you went and did that. Did yeah. you did you take any formal classes through Minds to do that? Did you just start learning on your own in the off time? How'd that go? It's so so both, right? So I audited a class. I couldn't get credit for it in my master's degree. Um, but I signed up for web programming 101. And it was funny. I, I mean, I showed up with a Windows laptop that I had purchased three years before that on Black Friday for <laughs> I think it was under $300. You got your, you got your use out of that computer. Yeah. Huh? <laughs> yeah. Oh, and I only changed that computer out two years ago. I mean, oh, that, wow. That's a computer well log data was built on. So that's impressive. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so I showed up with this thing and I mean, all these kids, obviously they're younger than me and uh, I'm sitting there in the class and they're just throwing around terms like SSH, you know, um, putty and the VM box and PHP. And I have no idea what they're talking about. I mean, Absolutely no idea. And so I go up to the professor who was actually a, a grad student. You know, it was like this level, of course. It wasn't, it was taught by a grad student. <laughs> and I just show him my computer. And I mean, at first I asked him, like, how do I SSH? What, what do these terms really mean? And he's like, oh, you just open the command prop on your, you know, on your Apple. And I go, oh, I don't, I don't have Apple. I have a Windows machine. And he just looked at me like, what are you doing in class? <laughs> it's like, get all right. Yeah. Man. Yeah. And so, uh, and so he, then again, right, so he saw that I was kind of committed to doing this. And so he said, okay, well, you know, kind of for dummies like you, there's something called Bluehost. And so I went to Bluehost, which is basically like GoDaddy or yeah. um, the alligator one, I don't know, HostGator, right? Yeah. Um, and I would just, I built my first website just uploading files one by one onto the server. So I would, I would edit the file. Then I'd upload it and I'd go see what it did. It usually broke. <laughs> I had no error messaging, so it was just a blank page. So then I'd sit there and scratch my head, you know, <laughs> kind of wondering what I was doing. And um, one of the ways that I, that I always like to say that I learned, uh, that I realized I was making progress, was that when I started, the questions I would ask, you know, the Google, I would come up with answers on GitHub that were five, six, seven years old. I mean, mm -hmm. it was basic, basic stuff, right? Like SSH, what is SSH? Um, and then slowly, slowly, the questions and the, the answers became a little more current. So then I was only two years behind. And then I was a year and a half behind. And you know, now I Google things and I actually come up with questions and nobody's answered it yet. I go, oh, wow, okay, so. I'm, I'm ahead of the more, curve now. I'm a little more at the <laughs> forefront of things, thank God. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's uh, always, you know, when I think about like Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, that's how I'd measure my progress in it. I'd be like, man, that guy used to used to tap me out six times in a roll. And right, right. then, you know, a year later, oh, you're only getting me twice now. And then, you know, <laughs> sooner or later, you're, you're submitting that guy, you're beating him up. So it's, uh, it's funny to find little ways like that, how you can measure your progress. I don't think of, uh, you know, doing it time stamped on Google results to see, you know, how current <laughs> the, the answer is, but that's a good one. Yeah. And, 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 you know, it's important to have a measure of, of, um, measuring your advancement because when you start, everything is so small, right? And I mean, just think about that, that experience of sitting in a class and basically being laughed at by all the undergrads because you didn't know what SSH was. And I keep referring to that because that's like really basic, basic. 
Um, and so that was one of the problems that I always encountered was I would go ask questions and the questions were so basic people couldn't answer them. Yeah. I mean, you kind of forget that that's a thing, right? People think, well, sometimes you ask a question, it's so advanced it's not a lot of people. Um, experts themselves only have a certain window that they view things in. And so when they, you know, when they're beyond the very, very basics, it's very difficult to talk to them about, about things that, that, uh, a absolute beginner would want to know. I, I saw that happen recently. Someone asked, um, a guy that I know that's an expert on a topic asked him a very basic question and he fumbled over it and <laughs> he texts me later and he's like, Hey man, you know, I, you know, I felt like I fumbled that and it wasn't good. And I was like, sometimes people ask such a basic question to someone that knows their, I mean, shit from, you know, front to back. And it's so basic that it's almost like, it's just kind of, it's a weird phenomenon, right? Yeah. 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 So yeah. I've, I've seen that happen couple times it's interesting so how long were you on this journey of learning to code before you started uh well log data oh excellent question so um well so in my timeline right we're in 2013 i guess also where did point. the idea come from i think yeah. you had already kind of been playing around with it at exxon right well a little it, bit exxon planted some seeds yeah. in 2013 so well log data was founded in uh in 2016 so 2013, I actually, with my newfound knowledge of, of web programming, I started a, a website called publicwelldata.com. Okay. And, um, yeah, I didn't know enough about it to kind of put up a, a paywall or, or even subscribe people. But basically the idea was you could go put in a list of API numbers and get back a link to all of the publicly available data on the state websites. Mm-hmm. And it came from, you know, you referenced my, my Exxon experience. I mean, at Exxon, we always were encountering this problem of how do we know we have all the information, right? Because when you're trying to make a decision about the subsurface, like I said, you'll never be able to dig up the ground and understand what's actually in it. So it's what's called a non-unique answer. So what a non-unique answer means is that you could come up with an answer and it's equally valid as my answer. We both have the same inputs and the same credentials and, and you know, kind of things like that. Um, whereas a unique answer is something like the stock market. Okay, so the stock market's a unique answer. You know exactly who bought what, when, where, and for how much. There's no doubt about what's going on. In a non-unique answer, um, it's an interpretation. And so, you know, even production data, in oil and gas, which is about as unique as uh, you could probably get, is an interpretation. It just depends on was it allocated or not. You know, that's a big thing for Texas data. Let's um, talk about that a little bit because mm -hmm. a lot of people may not be familiar with that, but allocation issue in Texas, you know, it's, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's done on a lease level. Mm -hmm. So you can't look at an individual well bore and know exactly how much uh, oil and gas was produced from that well. They do it on a lease basis and then you know data providers whether it's in various or rs you know they have their allocation methods to where they'll divvy it up between wells but you know it's a major issue for a lot of people when running any time type of analytics or statistics right yeah absolutely and and you know i'd, I'd kind of uh, caveat a little bit of what you said the the um, public reporting is done at the lease level right the operator might very well mm -hmm. know Mm -hmm. what the well is being produced at the, at the specific well level. So it's all about where you have the flow, the flow gauges and, and how you're measuring that. But even if you are thinking about, okay, I have one well on one lease on a lease and this is being reported. And even if you believe that it's being reported accurately, because then you even have another whole thing about like, how do you trick your competitors into thinking you're doing things that you're not? I mean, I don't know anything about that personally, but I've obviously heard the stories and <laughs> everyone's understand. heard the stories, yeah. right? <laughs> um, you're even going down to the physics of the whole thing, right? I mean, you're talking about volumes of liquid, which have to do with temperature of liquid and the precision of the instruments that are used to measure that volume and where they're placed and who built them and how old they are. And so you dig deeper and deeper into this data and you go, I mean, this is just a rabbit hole that, that you could never really establish that that one barrel or a hundred barrels or a thousand barrels that you think is produced is actually that amount yeah and then what are you using for 
you, what are you using it for, right? Are you using it for uh, back calculating what was actually in the reservoir? Are you using it to predict what the company will, will do in the future? I mean, the application of the data is just as important as the accuracy of the data going in. And I think that that is one of the main things that, um, you know, I kind of talk about and, and I've realized in my journey being an entrepreneur in the oil and gas space and being a data scientist in the oil and gas space. And I would say even more generally in the scientific space is that we don't have a lot of energy being put into solving problems like that. You know, everybody talks about solving the unique problems. Who's my friend? Who isn't my friend? What's my picture? What's not my picture? What am I sending around the world? The stock market obviously was one of the first targets for kind of machine learning and mm -hmm. analytics. But when we're talking about science, we're talking about thesis. We're talking about testing hypothesis. And we're talking about interpretations, which are unique. Um, we, we don't um, highlight that enough, that that is an issue or something that people have to realize when they're in the space. Yeah. I think, um, you know, I think that there's a lot more attention being brought to it. And I think that everyone's starting to realize, hey, we want to use new technology and we want to run analytics. We want to understand the data, but then you start going down the rabbit hole and it's just like, holy shit. Like there's, you know, there's so many different variables that go into it that, right. that could construe the data and, and, and make it, you know, inaccurate. And I mean, even, you know, some of the basic things like you said, like is the, is the operator reporting it accurately? Okay. Well that's one layer. And then you get down it's like, okay, what, what type of gauges, when were the gauges made? And it's just like kind of, it's like a problem that you don't want to have to solve, right? right? But they have to be solved too. So, you know, how do you guys, you know, how, how do you guys treat data? One, are you running off of a lot of public data or is a lot of the subsurface like seismic? I know, you know, that's obviously proprietary um, and that's provided by companies from their internal data, but like well logs, do you guys, are well logs public data or do you pretty much pull everything from internal operations? Yeah, excellent question. So, um, we, we pivoted our business model with the name change, right? Okay. And we'd actually pivoted the business model earlier, but the name change kind of came as a result of that. So originally, you know, when I was at Mines, I started publicwelldata.com, kind of looking at the public data. And well log data originally was a source of the publicly available well logs. Mm -hmm. So I went out and collected those and made them more accessible right? Um, including making the raster images available to be visualized online. And so we hold uh, two patents in that regard to make TIFF image files available on a web browser. Um, but the public, the public data space is a, you know, it's a crowded space. There's lots of people there. There's also established companies there. And what we realized is that the software that had been built to hold and deliver this public data could be turned into software that would be used behind firewalls and for the company proprietary data mm -hmm. to hold and deliver that data. And so now we don't provide data. So we're not a data provider anymore. Mm -hmm. So we drop the name data off of the name. Mm -hmm. And what we are is a software that allows you to connect to any and all data sources, including publicly uh, public accounts, right? So any kind of subscriptions that you may hold, internal data that you wanna you wanna connect to, and do the data discovery process in one place. So you don't have to go and have a spider web of connections between data sources and applications, but it all goes into one uh, data discovery platform. Yeah, which one is central platform for it all. Mm -hmm. And I was looking at you gave me this uh, e brochure on the company, so I'm sitting here thumbing through it during the show um but you know one question i asked is like who can use this you know is it emps is it finance groups is it mineral funds you know who who's using it and they've actually got a whole page in this thing dedicated to end users so i mean everyone from landman engineers lawyers financial uh analysts data scientists statisticians so you know who are you guys really you know who stands to benefit the most is it you know is it emps is it the private equity guys you know what are, what are you guys seeing as the major benefits or who benefits the most from it yeah so um i think right now 
our product is geared primarily to EMPs mm-hmm. with a data problem, right? And when I mean data problem, I mean internal data sources that are unorganized, that are siloed. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an application that is can be launched and used by people that it doesn't require special training. So for example, if your engineers need to look at a well log, right? They are not going to put in the time to learn geologic specific software, but we can show them a well log. They can make a cross section. They can look at a map and click on a dot and see the information available for the subsurface for that well all very, very easily. So it's a simple application in the sense that it's point and click. It's a web 3.0, you know, that, that everything's kind of self-explanatory, one page app. But on the back end, we've done a lot of the engineering and ETL work that does the heavy lifting to connect to your different data sources. So one thing I want to dive into, and I think it's going to help not only me understand this better, but also listeners, is if somebody's not using subsurface IO or something comparable, how is this work typically done? Let's just say at an ENP. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I think right now the answer to that primarily is that there's some kind of internal product that was built by IT on the order of six to seven years ago. And it's, um, you know, it's, it's met the needs of, of what people needed it to do in the sense that it provided a map of information, Mm -hmm. but it didn't, or it doesn't have the, um, subsurface visualization capabilities. So it's not a geologic software. It's a mapping software. And so there's kind of a half met, half. Um, Mostly half, done through like a GIS, like an Esri or something like that. Yeah, exactly. There's okay. some kind of Esri server. We've loaded the well spots, the culture layers, the seismic lines, and you can identify where the information is on the surface of the earth, but you can't look at it in the other dimension, which are the other dimensions, which would be the, the subsurface. So that's currently what's being done. Um, and then there's also an attempt to use legacy geologic software to do some of this. So, you know, some of the software is better at data management than others, but software tends to be specialized. Do you guys' point at the beginning of the conversation when you said, what kind of data is there, right? So there's software that's really good at well logs, there's software that's really good at seismic, there's software that's really good at petrophysics or at XRF, XRD analysis, but there's no software that says we do it all and we do it all very well at the data discovery level where you can search, visualize, and export the information. So what we're not trying to do is replace anybody's day-to-day tools in heavy analysis, right? In geomodeling or in heavy scientific interpretation capabilities. But we can link all the data sources together because getting the data in and out of these applications that you know, everybody's heard the 20, 2080 rule, right? It mm-hmm. really is 80% of what people are doing is just finding the data. And yeah. that's what we solve. Yeah, I think um, sometime we'll have to do some type of webinar with you and you can give us a walkthrough because I'm looking at screenshots of the platform and I mean, UI dashboards look beautiful, looks nice. I, look, I feel like I'm smart looking at it, like I'm looking at all these logs. I can't tell you what the fuck all of, <laughs> what they mean, but I look, I look smart. So uh, It's a whole bunch of lie detectors. Yeah. <laughs> so when you guys, when you did this pivot, you know, it's interesting because I don't know. I'm sure we've had a show on here that's kind of done a pivot, but I can't think of it off the top of my head. I think Mineral did one. Remember they originally started off as, is uh, was it Mineral? No, it was Source Water. Oh yeah, Source, Source Water. Yeah, that's right. Major pivot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So let's talk about that and kind of the thinking because, you know, a lot of people will get kind of stuck in an idea and what they think that the market needs. I and think it's more so they fall in love with the idea. They're just like, I'm so in love with this. Yeah. And, we can never pivot away and this is going to solve all the needs, but yeah. So talk, walk us through that process. You know, there's a lot of people on here that are founders or they want to be founders. And, you know, sometimes it's all right to understand that, Hey, the original concept wasn't all right. Let's pivot, go on to the next thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, I like to say this is the fifth startup that I've been involved in. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I haven't founded five companies in the sense of putting in the paperwork, but, uh, (laughs) definitely, at a stage where we've gathered together, you know, put the ideas, had, had a couple meetings about what the company was going to be about. And uh, each one, each time I did that, I learned a little bit more. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of the lean 
startup mm-hmm. methodology. Yep. Right. And also in the sales process of uh, the four steps of the epiphany. Right. And so, um, you want to listen to your customers. Definitely. Mm-hmm. And you also want to understand, um, what the market actually looks like. And so when we started, a lot of people would look at the product and say, oh, this is perfect for a cost-conscious company, uh, smaller companies that maybe, you know, are looking for an alternative and, and want something cheaper than you know, rattle off some kind of geologic software list. And uh, we realized that, that that wasn't the case because we couldn't offer the same value that these other softwares were doing. I mean, they, they'd been in business for 10, 20, even five years. Mm-hmm. Right? We, we've been in business for three. So obviously, um, we, you know, there, there's just comes a maturity with a product that's been on the market for longer. Um, but what we, so, you know, don't, don't necessarily listen to what people think that you should be selling to, but, uh, actually go to those people and try to sell them. And then when they say, no, this is not what we want. Go back to the drawing board and say, okay, what, what does it actually do? What is, what is mm-hmm. the value here and for who? And, um, you know, like I said, um, we've discovered that our, our true unique value proposition is people that have a data problem. And that means large companies that have been around for a while, maybe made a couple different acquisitions and they just have a really messy closet of data that we help go sort. So we're the flashlight in the closet. Yeah, where they can they can look at all their suits and dresses and t-shirts and socks on the floor and start to put it back together and actually make sense of it so they can get dressed in the morning. And my lights just went out in my closet this morning. I was having a hard time finding a shirt, so yeah. that that struck me deep. Yeah, right, right in my heart, and I felt it. <laughs> I, I get dressed on my iPhone light every morning. That's how I gotta fish around. So for you guys, you know, how, you know. You go and you go and start this business and then you pivot. You know, what's what's next for you guys? What are you looking at doing this year? You know, what are your goals? You know, are you guys have you been just funded, you know, funding within cash flow? Did you take on capital? Do you plan on taking on future rounds? What what's on the roadmap for you guys? Yeah, so no, you know, I've I've uh, bootstrapped the company. So we've funded within cash flow. That basically meant that I uh, That's two in a row. Respect. Yeah, and I uh <laughs> You know, I, I did all the work myself for the first year. Remember all those mm-hmm. lessons on GitHub? Yeah. I was, I was learning more and more how to do it. Um, so now, you know, I have a team, I have a team behind this that we're, we're growing the team. So thinking about scalability, mm-hmm. how to support our different implementations, that's going really well. We are open to taking money. I think everybody's open to taking money. Um, you know, at, at the level that we're at, it's just about finding the right partner. Yeah. Uh, sometimes it just more work explaining to somebody why they should give you money than to go explain to a customer why they should give you money. Uh, sales, and, sales cure all, right? I mean, yeah. if you go make sales yeah. then you don't have to worry about taking capital. So, yeah, and, and you know, uh, yeah, I've talked to a couple investors, uh, you know, in this city and beyond and yeah, it always comes down to that. Well, if you, if you make sales, then we'll give you the money. And, oh, if I made the sales, I wouldn't be asking for the money, <laughs> yeah. right? So, so I guess I'll go make the sales. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, A lot of people don't understand how much time and bandwidth goes into raising capital. And sometimes as a founder, especially when you're bootstrapped, it's like you should be putting in this time to actually making sales and pushing product. So. Yeah. So respect to people that uh, raise the money first and build the product later. I mean, I... I think that that I've seen enough people succeed at that as well mm-hmm. that I can, I can understand why you would want to go that route. Yeah. Um, I think though, very early you, you choose a path and you have to stick to it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there was a great debate on Twitter last month on, um, on tech Twitter talking about bootstrap versus funded and you know, it's, so many variables go into it that you have to really, um, it depends on the business, depends on the founder, you know, all, all kinds of different inputs that go into it. But, you know, I, I just have a lot of respect for people that bootstrap their businesses because I've been there, I've done it and it's tough. I mean, it's tough raising capital too, you know, it's yeah. tough selling someone on a story and then the pressure of delivering, you know, on that capital. I mean, there's pros and cons to both, but to hear someone, you know, that's taken an idea 
just like, well, I don't have any money. So I just learned to build it myself. <laughs> I mean, that's always like, it's like the good American story, right? Yeah. So. Yeah. And I think it's definitely the, the funner way of doing it. You know, if, if you can bear it, um, <laughs> if you can bear it, I think, uh, I was listening, you know, to your podcast and, and, uh, uh Mark and, uh, uh, Alan's. Oh yeah, yeah. 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 And I like the quote about how this all feels like three minutes underwater. Right. <laughs> and it certainly feels that way. You look back and you go, wow, it was all, it was all good. You know, it was only a year of misery or a year and a half of misery, but it's when so, you're living that year of misery, it's so much easier to look back on it and be like, man, yeah, that was, that was tough times. Yeah, but yeah. you know, it's the, the memories, uh, short lived. That's what I, I tell people. I'm yeah. like, man, I document what I'm going through because I don't want to forget someday. Like, yeah, I had to go through that shit. And yeah, that's yeah, a uh, startup important. life. Somebody, somebody, I don't remember who said it. Um, but I think it was, uh, Horowitz from Andreessen Horowitz. Uh, I think it was in the hard thing about hard things. He talks about, there's only two feelings in the startup life and it's either pure bliss and everything's just, you're just up in the clouds, you're on cloud nine, uh, or it's pure agony where you just feel like you're dying every day, yeah. you know, and there's really nothing in between. And it seems like sometimes hour by hour it changes. I feel like if you're on, if you're on cloud nine and you're feeling bliss, you should just have a reality check and be like, there's something around the corner that's yeah. going to bring you down. Yeah. So just get ready for yeah. it. I, I would say though, um, you know, the other thing about startup life is you do, you can, you can live that kind of life maybe for two years, mm -hmm. right? Well, it also depends on your situation. So when I started, I wasn't married yet. Didn't have a baby. Mm -hmm. Um, now, now I have both. Right. Um, and so at some point you have to normalize startup life back to a normal, like quote unquote normal job. Yeah. And you know, I have the advantage of having worked a corporate job. So I kind of know what that feels like, you know, nine to five. Mm -hmm. Um, one thing that, that is different is that I, you know, I, I really never get bored because I can just always turn to the next thing. They'll take yeah. my attention. Um, and that's one of the things I love about being, you know, a startup, uh, and an entrepreneur, a startup founder and an entrepreneur, but you can't, uh, live, you know, a constant state of anxiety for years and years and years. And, um, it's a quick way to death. Yeah, it's a quick way to death. <laughs> yeah. So that's another signal. Um, you know, I think that the three year mark is something that's kind of tossed around for a lot of startups. Mm -hmm. And, and I believe it, you know, I think I've been thinking about three years is where you have to either find your product market fit or, or move on or pivot. Right. Yeah. And so that's what we did. And, and we have a product market fit now and, and we have a, a very good product that's being you know picked up by the market and i'm very very happy about that and proud and and uh, thankful to everybody that helped me get it there there's actually a story i don't think i told it on this podcast if i did well i'm just gonna tell it again but um there's a story and i can't remember the guy's name um but i saw him online years ago and he talked about this very thing um he said you know, not only is it all right to quit, he's like, I encourage you to quit. And so he told his story because he had just sold his company to GoDaddy for 30 million. And before that, he had another startup and he worked on it for five years and it just was always like break even. He was busting his ass and it was always just break even. And five years in, he's like, I can't do this anymore. And he shut, shut shop, quit it. Anyways, came up with this. So uh, it was some type of WordPress service company that he sold to GoDaddy. And he said it literally took minimal effort and he just caught so much momentum and traction and then sold it. And it was just such a low barrier. And he's like, you should assess that. Like if you've been working on something for two or three years and it's just not gaining traction, it's all right to move on to the next thing. So I think a lot yeah. of people, you know, especially in today's social media world and everyone's like, Oh no, you can't quit. You can't quit. It's like, there, there's instances where you should divert your attention. So if you're in startup, either pivot to another thing or move on to something new altogether. So it's really, that's why I wanted to kind of talk about the pivot because it's a hard decision, right? I mm -hmm. mean, you're like literally changing your, your business model and the thesis behind your company. So I know that's not an easy decision, but it's good to hear that it's worked out for you guys and that you made the right decision. I think sometimes you need to, to lose the battle and give up there so that you can win the war. That's I think a good that's way a, of putting it. So like that's that. that's yeah. some general, who, who, what general did you quote? <laughs> general Corley, baby. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
it's not in the art of war. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna it go Google be. it. He pulled he pulled that from yeah. somewhere for sure. Jake <laughs> doesn't have that good of quotes. So if people want to find you guys, are you at subsurface.io or right. subsurface.io.com? No. Subsurface.io. Subsurface. Okay. So guys, go check that out. Ted, it was great having you. Um, I'm super, super excited to, to learn more about your story. Uh, and now thanks for bringing this pamphlet. It actually helps. We have a little visual representation, actually, what it looks like. So we have a little bit more insight um, coming into the conversation. So guys, go check him out. Are you on LinkedIn as well? I am. Yeah. So that people can connect with you there. Yeah, absolutely. And I actually, I would, I would even say if you want to email me directly, it's just Ted at subsurface.io. Cool, cool. And uh, I want to I want to say one last thing. I we didn't get into uh, so many other things I wanted to talk about, but um, <laughs> we can have you on again. <laughs> yeah. Uh, if you go look at me on LinkedIn, you know I, I call myself a geoprogrammologist. Oh, did so you I trademark made, that? I made up that term, <laughs> and uh, it just goes. It just kind of highlights. I think that uh, it's really good for people to have crossover skills, mm-hmm. and you know if you're, you know whatever you call yourself today if you can gain another skill and add, you know, and Portman to those two together into a new term, don't be afraid to do it. And I would encourage that. I think that's what the new economy requires. Absolutely. You know, that you learn those other, other things that you're passionate about. It's great advice. That's spot on. So I think, uh, you know, we've, we've talked about that several times. You got to be versatile in your skill set and be able to provide value in different ways. So Man, we'll have you on for another show. I'm sure that we can talk for another hour, hour and a half about a, a lot of different things. So, um, Ted, appreciate you coming on, man. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right, guys, if you enjoyed the episode, please take two seconds and uh, just open up your web browser, go to your email, and send this to all of your colleagues. We'll love you for it. Catch you in the next episode. Go, 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 go.